Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 53rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Jody Goldstein, Executive Director at Harvard Innovation Labs. The Harvard iLab is an incubator and ecosystem to help Harvard students build their startups and gain valuable connections. Since starting seven years ago, the iLab has helped incubate over 1,200 companies, and altogether they've gone on to raise over $1.5 billion. This includes companies like Handy, that was just acquired, Love Pop, Catalant, Artlifting, and so many others. Another really important and amazing statistic from the companies participating in the iLab is the fact that 50% of the founders are female. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Jody's background going back to the early foundational years in Vermont and being part of an entrepreneurial family in the hospitality industry and what that taught her, why she chose the startup path out of HBS, and the details on many early-to-market companies that ended up being precursors to things like Facebook and Instagram, what led her down the path of starting her own company called Drink, which was one of the first apps in the App Store, how she got involved in the Harvard iLab, and the mission behind this initiative at Harvard and why they don't take equity in companies, her views on what are the best measures for success and how they are striving to give students an unfair competitive advantage, advice for founders who are looking for a technical co-founder, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz job board has over 4,000 jobs listed, which is absolutely insane. Did you know that the best way to keep tabs on the market is to sign up for our daily job alerts email? Once you sign up and get your first edition, you'll be able to customize the preferences for the email so that jobs specific to your job function are sent to you. For example, if you just want to know about marketing jobs, you can set that up in your preferences. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jody. Jody, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So to start things off, I noticed, um, or in my research, I, I noticed that you grew up in Vermont, uh, and it looked like your family was entrepreneurs, and they, they ran a hotel and a restaurant in Vermont. And uh, a little fun fact about myself was, I actually worked in the hotel industry. I was a porter at a, at a Holiday Inn in Manchester, New Hampshire. So uh, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your early childhood of, you know, being part of this, uh, you know, family business. Absolutely. Yeah, they're the original entrepreneurs owning a small business. Um, and it mm -hmm. certainly was an unconventional childhood um, living in a hotel uh, at a young age. And uh, the parents put me to work also at a very young age. So Everything from uh, cleaning the rooms to prepping the food, sweeping the tennis courts, uh, you name it, I did it. Uh, but, you know, I have to say growing up in the hospitality industry, uh, so many amazing things you learn about customer service and uh, experience design uh, that I apply every day here at the iLab. I, you know, I joke that uh, I'm still in the hospitality industry. That's <laughs> so true. Yeah, I, I think I learned a ton too because I did everything from banquet setup to you know, delivering room service to bringing people to the airport front desk. So it's, I think that was a good foundation of how to relate with people in all different types of situations. Absolutely. When you talk about instant customer feedback, uh, you're definitely getting that. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was also really um, interesting to grow up in a very small town in Vermont with parents as business owners. You know, it was just, it was definitely a very different childhood uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, why did you decide to go to UVM? 
Um, well, you know, it was my state school. And um, back then, financial aid was uh, not as uh, prevalent as it is today. So it was the only school I could afford to go to at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, as soon as I got there, I fell in love. Um, I love the um, size of the school. I love the focus on liberal, liberal arts, but I also pursued a business education. I loved Burlington, Vermont, uh, mm -hmm. the perfect quintessential college town. Um, so it ended up being a perfect fit for me. And what did you do after school, first job? Yeah, so um, I wanted to get as much experience as I possibly can in the shortest period of time. And I wanted to get out of Vermont and see the world and uh, was exploring uh, investment banking tracks and uh, ended up turning those down to take a job at General Electric small mm. company you probably never heard of. Yeah, never. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what they offered me was this incredible uh, program where every three months they'd throw me into a new business and a new industry and a new city or country. And uh, that was appealing to me and uh, turned out to be a phenomenal first experience training ground. I feel like I got about 10 years experience in the course of three years and uh, was able to learn a lot. And so it was a rotational program and sounds like that was a good segue because then you ended up getting into uh, investing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I loved my experience at GE, but it, it became very clear to me that I was not a big company girl. I think the entrepreneurial spirit that my parents instilled in me uh, was starting to come out and uh, I felt the need to... Um, think about a career uh, in a more early stage environment. And uh, I had the opportunity to go work for uh, TA Associates uh, as an investor um, in early stage companies. I know they're more a late stage, growth stage uh, investor now, but back then it was a little bit of everything. And uh, I thought, what a perfect opportunity to understand um, how to start and run and grow a startup uh, from the perspective of an investor. So uh, that was also a really wonderful training ground for me. And why did you decide at that point to go back to business school and, and go to HBS? Um, yeah, you know, it's one of those things as a, as a kid, it was always an aspiration for me. I have no idea why. Um, it was someday I'm going to go to Harvard Business School and that'll help me figure out how I'm going to change the world. Um, <laughs> it just seemed like the right next step. Um, and, uh, all of the, uh, the partners that I worked with at TA, many, if not all of them, had gone to Harvard Business School as well. And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to pursue a partner track at an investment firm or if I was going to lean more towards startups at the time. And I thought it was a really great way to figure that out. Now, at what point did you start to get in, like interested in, in tech? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think a little bit at um, both GE and TA. Um, you know, so when I was at GE, I spent a lot of time in a lot of different industries. And I think what I liked was the um, innovation aspect of technology. Uh, when I was at TA as well, looked at a number of different industries, but really was gravitating towards uh, new paradigms, new business models, new distribution channels. And tech seems to be an enabler of that. Um, and then when I was at uh, HBS, um, it was uh, very different than it is today. Um, not Entrepreneurship was not really a thing back then. Um, they were still grooming the next uh, you know, CEOs, investment bankers, consultants. Um, but there was an opportunity to um, do a lot of exploration around um, 
uh, tech companies uh, in the different case studies. And I, you know, I just, I tended to get excited and passionate about that. And I thought that was interesting because when you, you know, graduated from HBS, it wasn't as entrepreneurial as it is today with the students thinking about building companies versus the traditional career paths. Uh, but upon graduation, you, like you did join a startup, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, again, a very unconventional path, um, career path at the time. My, uh, my classmates laughed at me and my professors <laughs> thought I was crazy. And, um, but there was something about that unique time in history that I couldn't ignore. Um, you know, it's kind of laughable now, but we were the first uh, class to have email at HBS. <laughs> and I, you know, I'll never forget that dial up modem sound and you've got mail. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, the very beginnings, we didn't even know it was a, a, you know, a revolution or we didn't know what the internet was, but it just seemed like a unique time in history. And, you know, as I mentioned, my bias towards new paradigms, new business models, new, pro new platforms, um, it seemed like the perfect place for that to happen. Um, and so I thought, you know, I can always get that consulting job or that investment banking job someday if it doesn't work out, but let me go try this. And so, you know, I was one of maybe a handful of classmates that uh, joined a startup coming out of school. Um, you know, funny story, I had the opportunity to um, join this small unknown company called Yahoo!, and uh, turns out, uh, you know, <laughs> decided I wasn't going to move to the West Coast for a variety of reasons. And uh, my classmate who did take the job ended up being uh, worth uh, an enormous amount of money even before I think she started her on her first day because they went public. Um, but, you know. <laughs> Hindsight, right? Hindsight. Exactly. Um, but yeah, joining um, a startup coming out of, of business school was um, certainly a, a risk, but uh, something that I was really excited to do. Well, a company that you worked for shortly thereafter, which is one of my fun facts about the Boston tech scene, and we mm -hmm. actually wrote a story about this on Venture Fizz a, a couple of years ago, is Planet All. So Planet All basically created the social network, right? It was the first company, the first social network. This was pre-Facebook. Uh, this was pre-space and like all, like, so you were part of the team that actually created the first social networking site. I know, I know. And the word social network didn't even exist at the time. You know, it's so interesting. Again, hindsight being 2020. Um, at the time, what was so exciting and attractive to me about it was this idea to connect with your network and to be able to update them and have them update you on what they're doing and um, where they are. And um, what ended up happening was the people that were on it were so connected and so in touch with each other um, that it really truly was the first social network. And uh, I know Boston does not get credit for inventing the first social network, but I think your story is right on that it, it really truly was. The word just didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, even Jeff Bezos was a believer because Amazon acquired it for $100 million in 1998, which I think that is another fascinating side tale of Jeff Bezos could have also owned the precursor to, you know, what ended up becoming Facebook, right? You know, one of the largest tech companies of all time. It could have been part of Amazon if they didn't shut it down just two years later, I think. No, absolutely. It, um, you know, was really interesting because Amazon at the time, early days of the internet was, uh, 
a small startup as well, but that was growing very rapidly and uh, making a lot of acquisitions. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, it sounds like peanuts today, but a hundred million dollar acquisition was actually quite a large exit back yeah. then. Um, but I have to say, you know, something that I'm always, you know, telling our entrepreneurs here is that I really look at it as one of the biggest failures that um, financial success is not a metric for, um, you know, what you're what you're measuring yourself on, um, but about value creation and what we had, the asset that we had created was so incredible and first to market. And the we had gotten to a million users. I think that's why Amazon was so interested in us in a very short period of time. And there were not that many millions of users on the Internet at the time. And um, the saddest thing to me is that they never did anything with it and basically shut it down. Um, and, you know, you think about what could have been. Um, and so, you know, when I when I when I mentor and advise our entrepreneurs, you know, think about what your goal is and is is it value creation that if it's just financial success, you know, you're probably in the wrong business. Now, a lot of the roles that you held within startups were business development roles. Why do you think you, you know, kind of focused in that sector of building a business? Um, well, you know, the the <laughs> the real answer is when you don't have a technical skill set, um, you are, you know, and you're the general business person in an early stage startup, you gravitate towards business development. And business development in an early stage startup is the catch-all for sales, marketing, customer acquisition, sort of everything related to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, since I didn't have any technical chops and I wasn't a coder, um, it was business development. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as you know, in an early stage startup, you wear multiple hats. And I think that's what I always loved and why I found myself so uh, attracted to very early stage was figuring out the business model, figuring out the market opportunity, figuring out what that value proposition is, um, is, is my, my favorite place to play. And, you know, as the startups um, grow, I think, um, you know, it's, it becomes less interesting to me. Uh, so you well, realized I like very early stage. And so we're going to talk about another company that was probably too early to market, Mobitious. So this was like a <laughs> precursor to Instagram. I know, I know. I, you know I tell and... people, if you, uh, you want to know what the next trend is, just do what I, <laughs> what I did 10 years too early or five years too early, that I have horrible market timing. But, I, you know, again, for me, it was always getting excited about the idea and that, mm -hmm. that new paradigm. Um, and Mobitious um, actually pivoted early stage of mobile. And, you know, it was funny because I felt like the internet was getting too mature. I think it was, you know, I don't know. 2000 something, 2005, 2007. And, you know, the internet was not as fun. It wasn't the wild west anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, mobile looked like the next platform mm -hmm. where everything was going. And so M Mobitious was an early mobile startup, pivoted from organizing mobile sites to mobile photo sharing. And again, that wasn't really a term that uh, existed yet. And I remember um, doing some research on this little company called Twitter that was getting a lot of traction. And, um, you know, funny, because I'm not much of a, a, a tweeter, Twitter person, but uh, I was one of the earlier um, Twitter people. Um, wow. I I was, you know, <laughs> very early. Um, but uh, what I think was really interesting was this idea of, sharing photos the way uh, folks were sharing on Twitter. And I remember some of the early 
uh, as I was doing my research, some of the early folks on Twitter were people in very remote areas of the country and the world that didn't have a lot of human contact and were just looking to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And we looked at mobile photo sharing as a way to extend that and, and do that. And, um, you know, again, I think to your point about market timing, um, we we got a lot of traction, but what we found was most of our users were outside of the U.S., folks who only had a mobile phone as their processing platform and didn't have a PC or a computer. And uh, we couldn't get enough traction quickly enough to get critical mass here in the U.S. because we were too early to market. And then, you know, fast forward a few years and uh, Instagram, you know, it, it really is a lesson that market timing is is so critical to success. What led you down the path of starting your own company? Um, you know, that one was a labor of love. It really came from a personal passion. And, um, the, you know, the story that uh, my co-founder and I love to tell is that we were traveling together in Italy and uh, we were um, partaking in all the wonderful wines at the different wineries and hill towns in Italy hmm. and couldn't remember the names of all the incredible wines we were drinking because they were too long and hard to remember. And we had our brand new iPhones and started saving pictures of the of the labels with our iPhones and a light bulb went off and we said, wouldn't it be great if there was this opportunity to research, remember, share wines um, from your mobile phone? And then um, when we got back, we decided we were going to um, you know, just do it as a project, as a, you know, trying to create a product. My co-founder was a product guy and um, it was my first bootstrapped startup. You know, I had been involved in so many venture backed startups um, and learned a lot from that uh, for sure. And this, um, you know, we were proud to say, I think we got to over 500,000 users uh, without taking a bit of outside funding. And, um, you know, it, it came from, again, just that, um, you know, looking to solve a personal problem. And uh, it was really fortuitous in terms of, of timing that the App Store launched uh, not soon after we had been uh, building that. And uh, we were one of the first apps in the App Store um, wow. and uh, really wonderful learning opportunity and process to get instant customer feedback and be able to release different versions of our product um, within days. Uh, so it was uh, it was a really exciting time. Um, and uh, who knew the App Store was going to grow into what it is today? W was Drink ever uh, featured in the App Store? Like I, I remember uh, Jason Jacobs talking about RunKeeper. And at one point it was featured. And he didn't even know it was going to be featured or things like that would happen. That's exactly what happened. Um, all of a sudden, our servers would crash and our users <laughs> would grow at this, you know, exponential rate. And um, it would be the featured app in the App Store. Or we also found out um, that it was featured in a commercial. And we didn't even know this was happening. But early days, Apple would feature a bunch of different startups. And I think it just flashed our logo um, mm -hmm. during a commercial. And again, all of a sudden, our um, our customer base just exponentially increased. Um, and, you know, it was super exciting. It really was um, just a different time. And, you know, to think that it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> okay. So fast forward to, uh, well, I guess, you know, there's been a stretch of time that you've been part of the the iLab team, but like, how, how did you get involved with the Harvard iLab? Like, what was the, 
the concept of what they were going to build? How was it going to operate with all the different parts of Harvard? And and then how did you uh, end up getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it is so funny how, you know, I tell our entrepreneurs that there are no straight lines. In my career, certainly there were no straight lines. It was a circuitous route mm-hmm. to um, my journey to the iLab. Um, but um, it was interesting because I was picking my head up from my startup and trying to think about the next stage of my career. And, you know, as you get older, um, you start to think about giving back to the community and impact and and how can I leverage my learnings over the past 15 years to help other entrepreneurs. And I was trying to figure out the best mechanism, the best means to do that. And just about that same time, a friend of mine out of the blue who worked at Harvard, a, a section mate of mine, um, reached out and said, you know, I just saw this job posting and I, I feel like it has your name written all over it. I, I thought I had to um, tell you about it. And it was this idea of the Harvard Innovation Lab. And it, at the time, it really, truly was just a kernel of an idea, this university wide experiment to bring together students from all across the university in this one Harvard fashion to explore innovation and entrepreneurship. And it seemed to marry my um, desire to help this next generation of innovators and entrepreneurs. But also, you know, as I reflected upon my experience at Harvard, it was exactly what I wish Harvard had when I was there. Um, And uh, so I I guess it's one of those things where you couldn't not do it. I, I had to throw my hat in the ring and I was very fortunate that they um, they chose someone um, from outside the university who was an entrepreneur. And I, I do applaud Harvard um, in that selection of, of person to, um, to run this um, because we are a startup and we're very entrepreneurial and we're very nimble. And I think that's important at a place like this at a very um, traditional university. Uh, so it, it's been a, a really exciting journey. It, it, it's been incredibly transformational uh, for the university and hopefully for the innovators that have participated. And what's the goal for, for Harvard? Uh, it's not like there's any you know, equity stake that they're taking out of this. Uh, so like, what's the, the overall kind of mission that ties into the iLab? Yeah, that was one of the things that attracted me the most to the opportunity was that it was focused on the educational impact of this next generation of innovators, that we are not here to turn every Harvard student into an entrepreneur. It's not about spinning out companies. It's not about picking winners. It's really about the experiential learning and how we can help them have an experience here that is going to help them in whatever it is they decide to do uh, in their career. So, um, you know, if they decide to take a job in an industry or government or a startup someday, um, we're indifferent to that. We wanna give them the skills and the resources they need to be successful. Um, and you mentioned that we don't take equity and, you know, that's that's incredibly important too. We, we like to call it an IP free zone and any ideas generated here are wholly owned by the student. And uh, it was really important to me um, to have complete alignment with these entrepreneurs that I'm not um, I'm not nurturing the idea, I'm nurturing the individual. And if their first venture is not successful, that's okay. Failure is encouraged here. Um, it's uh, you know something that we try to teach these incredibly um, high performing individuals that come to Harvard that you know failure is good. Um, but uh, it, it's 
this this idea that um, we're focused on inputs, not outputs, I think was really key to our mission. You know, how can we help students put their ideas to use in a relevant way? How can we take what they're learning in the classroom and apply that in a meaningful way that are going to make a difference in the world? So um, that impact focus is is very important to what we do. And how does a student get involved in like what what are they what can they expect to get out of the iLab? Yeah, sure. I think first and foremost, it's any Harvard student from any Harvard school with any idea at any stage of development. So we're completely agnostic across the board. Um, we want to be as open and inclusive as possible. We talk about top of funnel a lot. We want to get the students in here, whether they have an idea or they have a team. We want to get them um, comfortable with um, this entrepreneurial mindset that they can um work on ideas and and put them to use. So um, all you need is an ID uh, and that you are a hard, current Harvard student to get here. And then when you arrive, we want to meet you where they where you are, that we recognize that people are at different stages of their journey. And um, we might want to make it as easy as possible for them to um, get involved and get activated with our community. And then I would say, you know, the, the biggest thing that I think is the most um, inspirational to me is the breadth and diversity of students and ideas that come through here, that every school is represented. And um, the cross-disciplinary approach to innovation is so incredibly powerful that students come from different backgrounds, disciplines, skill sets, but meet each other around a shared passion. So, so much of the... Um, the programmatic elements that we put together are about connection and facilitating that for them. We we like to call it structured serendipity. Uh, we want that serendipity to occur. And like you said, there's so many different uh, industries and ideas, right? It's not just all pure tech or, you know, there's, I mean, I remember I was at a, an event at the iLab where all the companies were showcasing and one was, uh, you know, was making, uh, chips out of crickets, I think it was, or something. Like that. <laughs> so it was just like, I tried crickets today. It was pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think again, that's that's one of my favorite parts of what I do: it, the breadth and diversity of ideas. And it, it's since we opened, it's been pretty evenly distributed between industry categories. About a third social impact, about a third consumer and technology, and a third health and life sciences. And so it's really wonderful to see. Um, all of those coming out of Harvard. Um, but I think the common denominator is often, how do I make a difference in the world? I'm looking to solve a large problem that is existing, and I'm going to use innovation and entrepreneurship to do that. And so many of our founders never imagine themselves as entrepreneurs. You know, they're what I like to call accidental entrepreneurs. They come to us, you know, they're working on a class project or they just had an idea outside of their um, area of study that they want to work on and they end up commercializing and it never occurred to them to do that. So that's always very exciting. And how many companies do you think have come through the iLab? Yeah. And again, you know, to my earlier point, um, it, you know, we focus on inputs, not outputs, but it is so exciting to see that we've had over 1,200 companies incubated wow. here since we opened. And again, that's not our primary purpose. Right. Um, and but that's uh, extraordinary. It, it really, truly is. Um, and uh, 
again, the breadth and diversity of ideas. And when you think about the problems that they're tackling and they're going out into the world um, to solve, it's uh, it's really exciting. And, you know, so many of these uh, founders, when they tell their founding stories, they say they, they never imagined themselves doing this. So, you know, I'd like to think there are many companies, you know, companies created that otherwise wouldn't have been if these, this community and these resources didn't exist. So. And, you know, I, I know you're focused on, you know, helping students and um, inputs, not outputs per se, but there have been some pretty significant outputs of companies that have scaled and seen some tremendous success. Um, you know, just recently, Handy was acquired by the owner of Angie, Angie's List, which started in the iLab, right? Absolutely. Handy was one of our early iLab ventures. Uh, they were here every day. It was nice to have some company in the early days <laughs> of the iLab. And uh, it's so, I, I feel so proud. I feel like a proud parent, um, all of these little baby companies growing up um, to have such an impact. Um, and, you know, we're, we're pretty bad at uh, tallying up uh, metrics like money raised, dollars raised, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, because I don't like to focus on that. Um, but it is, you know, a, a wonderful a early indicator of traction and success. And we've just, I, I, we're not done yet, but there's been about a billion and a half dollars raised uh, from iLab oh. companies coming out of here. Um, and again, it's it's not our primary mission, our primary purpose. So it's it's really wonderful to see that amount of traction. And, you know, I think it's a long-term play and we're hoping over the next 10, 15, 20 years, many of them are, are going to have a significant impact. And one of my favorite companies, least that I know are is attached to the iLab. And uh, again, I, I, I met her at uh, one of your demo day events or whatever it was called. Uh, Liz Powers from Artlifting. Yeah. I mean, just talk about a social mission of tying something so meaningful together, but still building a business that has, you know, revenue and hopefully profits. And, um, and I just remember hearing her story, what she was sharing. And I, I just had finished um, the founder of Tom's, Blake's book, and I was just like, wow, what she is doing sounds like exactly what this guy would be interested in. And I, I remember talking, I'm like, have you ever talked to like Blake about having him invest in your company? He's like, yeah, I did. And he's already written a check. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me that you introduced her to him and I was going to I know, I, I, I wish, but no. Uh, <laughs> but I was just like, wow, this would, this would be up his alley. She's like, no, I'm already on it. That just shows you how dynamic she is. No, absolutely. And she's such the perfect example of exactly what I was talking about. She, as an undergrad at Harvard, never imagined herself as an entrepreneur starting a company, being the CEO of this incredible venture. Um, but she saw a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And um, what she is doing is nothing short of, you know, miraculous and incredible. Think about all of the people who are no longer homeless because of her. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that was the pain point she was trying to solve. She was trying to to combat homelessness and found that her efforts working with them on a daily basis wasn't moving the needle. And now by creating art lifting and giving them a vocation and opportunity to sell their art, um, she's able to leverage um, that uh, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I think about the impact she's having on society, not to mention sharing this, all their amazing art with the world. Um, you know, she's a great example, too, of really listening to the marketplace and, um, you know, starting out as, as B2C. And now she's got such a really robust B2B business as well. Um, so she um, she's a, a wonderful entrepreneur that, um, you know, is is so 
um, coachable and learned so much and has grown so much in such a short period of time. Um, so yeah, we're huge fans of hers as well. Um, and you know, when you mentioned Liz too, you know, one thing that I think uh, we don't think about too often is is fifty percent of our founders here are female, wow. and we don't select for that, and I don't think we should. Um, but when you think about the downstream problems in the marketplace, um, there is no shortage of interest in um, entrepreneurship uh, from female founders. So we have to make sure we nurture and support them so they can be wildly successful. <laughs> now, in the how many years has the iLab been in existence now? Uh, we will celebrate our seven-year anniversary uh, in November. Hard so in to those, those seven <laughs> those seven years. What's how has entrepreneurship on campus evolved? Yeah, I mean, I think tremendously. I think the, the the astounding thing for me every year is that the number of students coming to Harvard every year stays pretty much the same, and the number of students coming to the iLab continues to grow every year. Wow. And not only that, they find us early. They find us the first week they're on campus. They write it into their applications that they want to work out of the iLab and they have ideas. And so I think it's less a statement of us and, and you know, how successful we are, but really it, it's a statement about this next generation of innovators and their interest in um, using innovation and entrepreneurship to make a difference. Um, I also find that... Um, Early on, I had many conversations with um, students and even their parents about this unconventional career path that they were embarking upon as they were looking to not take a real job coming out of school, rather starting a company and uh, trying to convince the parents that you know their Harvard education was still well spent. Um, and I find that I'm having fewer and fewer of those conversations. So it, it's certainly becoming more mainstream to be an entrepreneur. Um, but I think, you know, I think the biggest thing from, you know, as I had said earlier, how transformational it's been for the university, I think this one Harvard notion and this cross-disciplinary approach to entrepreneurship, you know, Harvard's such this incredibly, wonderfully decentralized university, um, but the, the best and the brightest are coming from around the world um, to study here. And if we can facilitate those connections, um, great things can happen. You know, I think that, you know, Boston's also this an incredible place for that as well. Um, when you think about it more broadly. No doubt. And now, how do you advise students on, you know, the company building aspects if they start to say, okay, there's something here. Um, you know, how do you advise them on, you know, getting that right product market fit? Yeah, you know, we try to use more of a case manager approach. Um, we don't believe one size fits all. We want to make sure that we meet them where they are. We use a milestone-based approach. So when students come to us and they um, are actively looking to commercialize, they um, apply to our venture incubation program. And again, we're not picking winners, but we're really picking them based on stage of development and uh, when they enter that program, they um, it unlocks um, more resources for them and they have an advisor assigned to them who's going to work with them to help set their milestones and meet their milestones. Um, and then we do it um, through a series of different programmatic elements. Uh, we try not to be too prescriptive. Um, and because they are students, uh, they are not full time on their ventures. They have other responsibilities as well. Um, 
many of our programmatic um, elements are a la carte, so they can attend um, industry roundtables and founders dinners and workshops that help them with whatever it is they are um, they are working on at the time. Um, but you know, I think by and large, what we are focused on, if we um, you know could distill it down, is really. Um, asking why, what problem are you solving and making sure there is a problem to be solved. And why are you uniquely qualified or is your product uniquely positioned to solve that particular problem? You know, we talk a lot about that and a lot about the pain gain ratio. Um, you know, what is your, your unique value proposition? And um, trying to get them to test that very early and often. Um, and so uh, a lot of the, the feedback and the resources we're providing are to help them, as I mentioned earlier, to, you know, to fail early on, to figure out um, what's working and what's not. Um, and then I think another key component of success for these early stage ventures is building that network and building relationships with the um, all of the community contributors that are so important to their success. And what we want to do is um, expose them to this curated community of uh, resources very early in the process um, so that they, they have those relationships and they have um, a higher likelihood of success. You know, we talk about um, getting them further faster. And, I, you know, I joke that we want to give them an unfair competitive advantage. Um, so that's kind of how we think about uh, the the programming and nurturing and supporting them. Now, what about actually, like, if you're a, a tech company and you know you're a non-technical founder, like, how, how like, how, how do you advise them on actually going to find uh, you know a developer to build your product? Yeah, yeah, you know, we have a lot of them coming in saying, "I need a technical co-founder." Right. You know, I say, "Okay, I point to you know the conference room around the corner." You know, we have a we have a room full of them. Just go pick one. Um, you know, they think it's that easy, um, right. and I think that's probably one of the hardest things for a non-technical founder. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a couple different pieces of advice. One is. Do as much as you can without building out the product because mm -hmm. your in initial thesis might not be what you're going to want to build. And so don't spend a lot of time and money building something that people don't want to buy. Um, and there's a lot you can do with um, non-technical um, prototypes and testing that with the marketplace. Uh, the second thing is um, don't be in stealth mode. Get out into uh, the community and the ecosystem early and often and share your story. Because, again, getting back to serendipity, I think, um, you know, you might find the perfect technical co-founder um, when you're not looking for them. And, you know, we, you know, I think one of the most important things is that, you know, the 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 best developers and the best technical folks have a lot of options uh, and they're getting paid a lot of money to work at Google and other places like that or um, well-funded startups. And so early stage startup founders have to rely on that vision and the passion and have to convince people to join them based upon that. And so I think the best way to do that is to share your story and hope to find someone who shares that passion that happens to have uh, a technical expertise. Well, because I'm sure the, the pushback you get from that is, well, someone might steal my idea. Yeah, yeah. It is funny, uh, you know, it, even early uh, early days of the iLab, um, people were concerned that we should uh, erase uh, the whiteboards at the end of every day to make sure that no one stole anyone's ideas or brainstorming. And 
we found the exact opposite to be true, that if you leave your whiteboard up, people might happen upon it and give you <laughs> ideas and contribute to it and help with the brainstorm. Um, and so, you know, my motto to our entrepreneurs is, uh, you know, it, if you think it's about the idea, you're fooling yourself. There are not that many new ideas. There are some, and, you know, I, I don't want to discredit them, but um, it's really about people and execution. And um, if you don't have the right people or the right execution, it doesn't matter how good your idea is. Um, and so I think sharing um, as wide and loud as you can. Um, I think it also, every time you get up there to pitch and you tell your story, you learn something, you get feedback, someone tells you something you didn't know before. Um, and that learning curve is so important early in the process. And, and how do you advise uh, founders that feel like they're getting traction, they're on the right, um, right path, and they want to raise money? And maybe they need seed angel funding, uh, like like so, so. What like what support do you provide there? Yeah, um, again, you know, a lot of it is uh, relationships with the network, and um, you know, capital is a resource that is very scarce for entrepreneurs, and probably one of the more important resources. Um, but I think a lot of our founders um, had often spent too much time fundraising. Um, and oftentimes raising more money than they needed at that stage of development. So we try to do in a variety of ways, um, help them understand the different types of funding mechanisms, some of it non-dilutive, um, the different types of investors, um, angel seed, later stage investors, et cetera, um, and giving them an exposure to a wide variety. And, and for some of our impact ventures, Obviously, um, you know, a different path for them in our life science ventures, how to write an SBIR, um, lots of um, grants that they, they can get access to. So because we're serving such a diverse audience, um, we're trying to give them um, exposure to and, um, and um, understanding of different funding mechanisms. But um, we also have um, things like funders and residents, and we do uh, VC dinners, and we do panels again, to help our founders develop those relationships with the funders long before they're looking to raise money. And I think that's that's incredibly important because as you know, uh, as many founders know, when you're, you're in pitching to um, a VC firm, you get one chance. And uh, we wanna make sure that they get feedback on their ideas um, well before they're looking to raise money. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that's that's the advice we try to give them, and then try to resource them um, in uh, lots of different ways. And what, what about with uh, like gaining first customers or getting you know uh, PR for your company, like things like that? Yeah, we have experts here um, that um, help them with um, with marketing and PR and trying to help them understand how to navigate uh, that world. Um, you know, again, I think a lot of um, uh, a lot of our early stage founders are very scared about sharing their story and they want to be in stealth mode and we have to advise them when that's not a good idea. Um, and uh, again, I think it's, you know, it's just exposing them and giving them opportunities to hear from experienced founders and entrepreneurs who um, were where they were not too long ago and um, can share their learnings. Well, the, one of your, another 
alumni of the uh, the iLab that crushes PR is Love Pop. So that whole yeah. <laughs> like I, like I turn on uh, ABC and whenever they're doing a recap of successful companies for Mr. Wonderful. I always see Wambi and John. Like they're I know, there. I know. And it is incredible. I remember early on when uh, when Shark Tank wanted to come here to um, interview potential candidates for their show. I thought, oh, I don't know if this is really the right <laughs> thing for our founders, but quickly came to realize that it's such a wonderful marketing and PR opportunity. And I think you're right. Love Pop is a great example of that. Um, and it's you know, I, I remember the, them telling the story of when the show aired and, uh, you know, how their their e-commerce uh, site went through the roof. Uh, <laughs> so it, it definitely serves a purpose for sure. We've had a lot of companies go through Shark Tank, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, outside of uh, what you do for, for the working hours, what do you like to do outside of work? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, my hobbies tend to be uh, things that are life threatening and um, <laughs> dangerous, uh, much to my family's uh, <laughs> chagrin. Um, so I'm a pilot. I like to fly. Um, really? I wow. do that as often as I can, which isn't often enough. Mm -hmm. Job kind of gets in the way of that. Um, but uh, if I, you know, had more free time, I would definitely do more of that. The original idea was get my pilot's license so I could fly the family up to Vermont because uh, we love to ski mm -hmm. and uh, participate in many activities up there. Um, and I don't get to do that quite enough. Um, I also, you know, avid snowboarder, fat biking is uh, my new sport, which is super fun, gets you out into the woods in the wintertime. Um, the idea is to make winter as palatable as possible. Um, and uh, horseback riding has always been my my first love, and it's something that I've just gotten back into recently. Mm -hmm. um, again, family's not too excited about that. <laughs> and um, what else? Oh, I'm trying to learn how to kite surf, um, failing miserably, but hopefully I can uh, achieve that someday. Um, so yeah, so you get the um, you get the idea that uh, I, I seem to have a little bit of a death wish, um, but you know, for me. I, you know, it's it's a way for me to kind of um, relax and um, kind of decompress. And these types of activities combine this intellectual stimulation with an adrenaline rush that I find that I need. And I joke that it's it's my form of meditation in some kind of perverse way. It relaxes me. <laughs> Action sports. <laughs> exactly. So. Kite surfing looks like a lot of fun. I've never tried it, but I've seen, I used to watch people do it when I was living in Southie and I was like, wow, that is amazing. Yeah. It's harder than it looks sadly, mm -hmm. but I'll keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jody, thanks so much for sharing your background story and all the great things that the iLab is up to. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks Keith for everything you do for the ecosystem here. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.